let's go ahead and look at the um, Wellspring purpose and disciplines. The purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Along with that go three areas of focus. Discipline one, the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the Word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Discipline two, the home. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. And discipline three, ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel, and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. <clears throat> and we'll go ahead and read the Wellspring verse, Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It's very easy to read something, to hear it every week, and have it taught to us many times throughout the year, and become a bit desensitized to it, isn't it? And they've warned us this can happen, and it still happens. I know that's true for me. In fact, as I was sitting down to prepare my review of the Wellspring Disciplines with you, I was struck by just how lightly and casually my eyes sort of floated across the words on the page. So I read them again and again, and I wrote them out, read them again. I was very familiar with the words here on the back of our notebook, but it took a real effort to get my brain to engage with them again in a new and focused way. We're lazy and forgetful, aren't we? We're ungrateful. We have an excellent tool at our disposal to help us check and recheck our hearts toward God, the gospel, and his work in our lives. Yet, I could read them without really thinking about them or personalizing them or without seeking a deeper meaning in these words. So I made an effort to make each of these disciplines more personal and to dig a bit deeper into each one to see how it can have a greater impact on my walk with Christ. Let's look at them and ask ourselves some questions along the way. Look again at discipline one, the heart. Jenna prayerfully shepherds her heart. I am prayerfully shepherding my heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. When I read the first Wellspring Discipline in this way, I really had to ask myself, am I? Am I really doing this? Am I... Like it says in Deuteronomy 6, 5, and 6, Am I loving the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my might? And these words that God's commanded me, are they on my heart? Verse 6. I continued asking myself questions to better understand how this discipline applies to my day-to-day -day life. Am I reading God's word daily? Am I not just reading Am I prayerfully striving to meet and know God through his word? Even beyond my time in the word, am I purposefully reflecting, reminding myself, and carrying the truths with me throughout the day? Am I applying these truths to my life? Am I applying these truths to my life when I sin? Or when I am tempted to sin? What about applying these truths when I'm being sinned against? Do I apply these truths when things don't go my way? What about when things do go my way? And when I fail in any of these areas, sin, temptation to sin, my response when I am sinned against or when things don't go my way, when I fail in these areas, where do I go? Where should I go? This isn't an open-ended process. 
A woman seeking to live out the wellspring disciplines in her life must be driven back to God's word in all circumstances. This feels weighty, doesn't it? We certainly can't answer all these questions with a positive response on our own, can we? We must completely rely on God to even come close to hitting these marks. None of this can be done on our own strength. And none of this can be done on an island, can it? No, as if tending to our own sinful hearts wasn't difficult enough, we have to interact with other people. <laughs> Let's break down the second discipline and ask ourselves some questions about it. Discipline two, the home. She ministers, Jenna ministers, <laughs> I minister to those in my household with a heart for God and the gospel. Let's continue on in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Let's ask ourselves a few questions to really dig deeper into this discipline. Am I, as stated in Discipline 1, growing my love for God and shepherding my heart through his word and the gospel? Am I trying to minister to those in my household without or with a love for God and the gospel, with or without shepherding my heart with his word. Without shepherding my heart toward God through his word and the gospel, what becomes of my household interactions? Are they ministry, or are they just interactions? And without daily heart shepherding, what risks am I running when my husband sins against me, when my children throw roadblocks in the way of my plan? when I sin against my roommate or siblings. Stepping into interactions with our family members and those in our household without first shepherding our own hearts is a scary thought, isn't it? There is a reason this discipline, too, is in two parts. One, she ministers to those in her household, and two, with a heart for God and the gospel. We must be more than cautious to step into household ministry without shepherding our own hearts first. And just as Discipline 2 carries on Discipline 1, neither of the first two disciplines are dropped at all when we step into the third wellspring discipline, that of ministry. Discipline 3, ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. I step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Notice this discipline focusing on ministry doesn't say, oh, so she should be serving in some capacity. No, our ministry begins once you or I step into the church. Our ministry is simply interactions with other believers. That's the baseline of it anyway. And if we are caring for our own hearts and bringing that gospel-fueled heart to the people closest to us, we have an opportunity to shepherd others outside the home in that way as well. Let's look at Deuteronomy 6, now verses 8 through 12. You shall bind these truths as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So let's check how we're doing in this discipline by asking ourselves some questions. If our ministry in and out of the home should be built on a foundation of growth in the growth in the gospel, what type of foundation am I building on? Do I step into the church dry and undernourished, looking to be fed and served? Or do I seek every opportunity to be fed by God's word so I can encourage and nourish and serve others? Do the people in my household get the best of me or my leftovers? If I compare my service in the home to my service in the church, would that comparison and the attitudes that go with it seem confusing or contradictory to the people in my life? Ladies, let me say that every one of these questions convicted me greatly. As I tried to say as I read the disciplines, I, Jenna, need to be doing these things, growing in these areas, and so often I fall short. Some days, simply falling short would have been considered a huge victory. These questions, and there are many more we could ask, I'm sure, they are questions I need to be asking myself as I review the disciplines. As I approach God's word, from the first good morning to the last good night in my home, I need to be taking these disciplines seriously on a personal level. So ladies, I confess my sins of ambivalence and laziness towards this practice of looking over the Wellspring Disciplines together each week. As I step into each of your lives each week, I need to be preparing my heart daily, caring for the hearts in my home well, so that I'm ready to minister to you in turn. These disciplines, while not the word, (laughs) are an amazing tool, encouraging us to take a careful look at ourselves And they, by God's grace, have the potential to change our lives and the lives around us for his kingdom and glory. We, I, mustn't take that for granted. This this lesson is categorized as Discipline 1, the heart. But I I would really desire that you think broader than just Discipline 1. I want you to think about not only how this message applies to your own heart, but I've, practically, how do you evaluate, in, primarily in a lot of ways for kids, of just recognizing in shepherding hearts in your home. might even be how you shepherd friends in your small group. Uh, so I, I hope the practicality of this lesson goes beyond just looking at your heart, but primarily we're here today to look at the heart. I'd love to tell you why, how, where did this lesson come from? And as I have pondered this, I I know it came to mind in the midst of a counseling setting uh, of just looking at the deeds of the flesh in in a person's life and talking about the fruit of the Spirit that should be present. And I think I would have been very comfortable at one point just telling you that is the where this lesson came from. And, but I truly have recognized over a period of time that where this lesson came from is a need for me to be shepherding my own heart. For me to be evaluating my own heart in light of what the deeds of the flesh are, in light of what the fruit of the Spirit is, And so I realized as I was on this journey to have a better understanding, and and I know many of you know this, but I became a believer at 28. The sanctification process was rather slow. And as I look at the fruit of the Spirit, and as at this time, as I was looking at the fruit of the Spirit, 
I realized I had definitions that I had placed on these words. When you look at the, the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, there's nine manifestations, and they're words that we might use, every one of them might use every day. We might use the word love. We you might use the word joy, peace, patience. So they're very common words to us, but we have our own little definition. And in my case, those definitions were not biblical definitions. And so my journey of understanding the fruit of the Spirit comes from my own recognition of realizing I did not use terms in the same way that God uses terms. That's eye-opening. Before we get to Galatians 5, I want to just kind of take a, a running jump to let you know what is going on in the entire book. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 and 2, if we were to outline it, would be Paul defending his apostleship. So here's the setting. We know from Acts 13 through 14 that Paul, it is very reasonable to think that Paul was the founder of this church. And he's now left, he's on his missionary journey, he's gone, and people have come and said, you know what, he's really not an apostle, he's really not sent by God. Uh, imagine after a period of time of having sat under Scott's teaching on, on Sunday and Scott leaves, and all of a sudden you have a group of people just say, you know what, Scott really wasn't preaching God's word. It would be foolish to think that we would be swayed away from the wonderful teaching that we sat under, but that's exactly what happened here. They, they were minimizing and they were having a, a low view of Paul's apostleship, wrong thoughts of what salvation was, had entered the church because they had diminished the teacher. So now we have a setting where they've added to what is salvation, how is a person saved. So Paul defends his apostleship in chapters 3 and 4. What Paul is teaching on is, is sanctification, is salvation by faith. And I know you've all gotten this blue card at some point in the year, and I, I saw one back there, maybe a couple if you don't have one, but, but what Paul is teaching in chapters 3 or 4, this event that happens right here on this crease from the unregenerated man to the regenerated man, that is sanctification, that is justification. This is man being justified, being, being deemed to be innocent by God. And so what Paul is, is teaching here is it is by faith alone. What, what is interesting, Paul, had, that was his original teaching to this church, but now that they come from a Jewish background, and people are coming in and they're saying, no, you, you need to hold to some of the Jewish traditions as well. So it's Jesus plus works. Jesus plus the law So what we see in chapters 3 and 4 is Paul making the case that we are saved by faith alone. We are given God's grace, which is a free gift. The result is faith. We are regenerated. And and then comes, how do you respond to this gospel? In chapters 5 and 6, Paul is teaching on what the work of the Holy Spirit, what the the changed life, what takes place here at at conversion, at being justified, the sanctification. This whole middle page here is what we're talking about when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. 
it is a process. I wish it was you get saved and life looks really good. But for some of us, it was a slower process. For me, it was. Coming to Christ at 28 years old, it was a slower process. And, and so this is a progression of looking more like our Savior. And that's what we're going to be talking about today as we look at the fruit of the Spirit. But in a very practical way, Galatians 5 and 6 is, what does the believer's life, what is it to look like? What we're going to study today and what we're going to look at, I know are probably verses that are very, very familiar to you, Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But let me start with, what does it mean? What does sanctification mean? And this is on your handout. And the generic meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning. So what is going on in the midst of this, on this blue card, is we are being moved to the state of proper functioning. So to sanctify something or someone is to set it apart for the purpose that it was designed for. This might be helpful. Take a pen, for example. This, when it is sanctified, it's when it becomes a writing device. It is now being used for the purpose, the person that designed this, the person that made this, this is what they used it for. For, for a pair of eyeglasses, it's sanctified when it improves sight. So in the same way, in the theological sense, things are being sanctified when they are used for the purpose that God intends. So did you get that? There is something that God intends for us in the midst of our sanctification. As human beings, we are sanctified, and it's because we're living as God purposed us to live, as God designed us to live. The book of Galatians is a clear presentation that the sinner is saved by grace, resulting in faith as well as the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that is in the Christian's life. And to a lost and dying world, they should recognize something different about us because of the Spirit working in us. I hope today, because of the time that we spend together, you have a deeper understanding of how to use a text like this to shepherd your own heart. And here's what I mean. There's times where I will look at the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, faithfulness, and self-control. I will look at that, and and I will look, where have I fallen short? And I use it as a means of examining my heart to where do I need to confess sin? And see, this is why it's really, really, really important that we have a biblical understanding of what these words mean when God penned them in scripture. Because if I don't have a right view of what love is or what joy is, how can I rightly see sin in my own life? So I hope the time we spend, this will be a good tool to help you examine your own heart. So we're going to start in in verse 16 of chapter 5. And here's what Paul says. So I say, live by the Spirit, And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. 
For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. What Paul is doing here is is he is teaching by comparing and contrasting. As we continue through this passage, you will see Paul taking two things and comparing them. They're contrary. They, they, they don't go together. You know, the kids play the match game. Those, that's not a match. What we're talking about, Paul wants us to see that this is not a match. Uh, they're opposites. Look at the following verses, and, and we'll start in 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, which is an act, it's a deed, Impurity, that is what goes on in the heart, and our mind, it's how we think. Uh, debauchery, that would be immoral, and most likely would involve sex and drunkenness. Verse 20, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Verse 21, and envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, as you read those three verses, it, it kind of describes a non-believer, doesn't it? Yeah, there's something, I, I'm going to use the word almost every time, so I'll say 99.9% of the time, but I do think it's 100, but just for just playing it safe, 99.9% of the time. Whenever you see sinful nature in Scripture, whenever you see the word sinner in Scripture, it is talking about a non-believer. These verses, when Paul says the sinful nature, he's not talking about someone that's somebody that's kind of a believer. He's talking about non-believers. Remember, we're talking contrary. We're talking compare and contrast. Verse 22, the text of the fruit of the Spirit says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I want to highlight something. I might go back to this a few times, but I I wrote up here two words, indicative and imperative. It, It is always... In the original language, in, in the Greek, is the verb, and it, it's the mood of the verbs. But I want you to understand something. When we talk about indicative, it's, it's relating to the verb form that is just a statement of fact. So t- sometimes in Scripture, it can even look like a promise. It is, it is the, the author, God, is stating a fact. Now, here's the really awesome thing. That, Just a side note. Over 15,000 times in, in Scripture, God is using indicatives. He is stating facts. Far less, I, under a 1,000, he is using an imperative, which the verb form expresses out of a command. So here's how I understand that. God is very intent on us knowing him and knowing what he's like. And knowing that he is the creator. Because he speaks more to us in his word in the form of a fact. It was interesting. I, I, gosh, 
confessing here. I love eavesdropping when I'm in a coffee shop. Don't judge me. I saw you laughing. So I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, it's two little old ladies. And the one says to the other, you know what? The Bible is just God giving us some rules. And, and as I'm thinking through just the, the, the indicatives where God just wants me to know him, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking of that conversation. This is not a book of manual of how to live. This is, this is a book of who God is and what he wants me to know about him. And, and the imperative, that is the verb form that expresses a command. Here's what I want you to see in this. Go back to verse 19. And there's only two, two indicative verbs in these from 19 through 23. Back in 19 where it says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, that is an indicative. It is stating a fact. So the acts of the sinful person, sexual immorality, impurity, uh, drunkenness, idolatry, uh, it, it's a simple fact. When you when you go to when you go to verse twenty two, the fruit of the spirit is again. It's an indicative. It's a statement of fact. This is what it is. You you can't produce this on your own. This is the work of God in us, and it's a statement of fact that if we are if we've left the sinful nature once which we once were, we're in the midst of this sanctifying process. This is a true statement of fact. We will be growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's amazing. Let me, let's unpack these verses a little bit more going back to 19 and 20. I want you to recognize, and this is, I marvel at this. I, I, the way I think, I love facts. I, I, and here's a fact. So often in Scripture, God puts so much in such a small space that we don't have to really struggle to figure it out. And, and I want you to know that every area we sin, and I have it on your, your handout, is three categories. Every sin we commit comes in three categories. Verse 19, it's the deeds of the, of the sexual nature. It's sensual, it's sexual immorality, it's impurity. Uh, that could even involve the way you dress. The second deeds of the flesh that we find in verse 20 is false religion. It's idolatry. And, and here's a simple definition of idolatry. It's when we're willing to sin against God to get what we want. But that's false religion. Witchcraft is easy. We, we understand that one. But the idolatry, it's whenever you're willing to sin to get what you want. The third category is, is what happens on the human horizontal relationships in our life. It's the hatred, the discord, the jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I would put the drunkenness, I would put that into false religion. It's thinking, I deserve something. The orgies, I would put it into the sensual. But, but here's the point of what happens here. Every time we sin, it's either going to be in the, in the area of sensual, false religion, or our human relationships. Praise God he put it in just a few verses that I can understand. 
what I need to change. What Paul is saying is prior to conversion, this is what our heart was. It was sexual immorality, it was impurity, it was debauchery, it was idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. This is what we were in our sinful nature. In verse 21 comes with a, a strong warning. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And, and I, I really want to, to explain those that live like this. Uh, remember, at the point of being justified here on this crease, in this sanctification, we sin until the point of glorification. Remember, here it's the, we live in an unmixed condition. We're completely the sinful nature. Here we're in the mixed condition. We have this flesh. We have, we have this desire to be pleasing to the Lord. We have the Spirit. And then at the time of glorification when we die, we're the new heavenly man. And, and so I, I want you to, those that live like this, this is not a call to perfection. You are going to sin. The people you live with are going to continue to sin. But is your life characterized by one of these deeds of the flesh? Are, are you characterized as, as a person that causes dissension, <clears throat> who lives by selfish ambition, who, who has fits of rage? Are you characterized this way? And, and here's the good news. If you're sitting here today and, and you're thinking, maybe I am, there's times I am, that's why God tells us about when we confess our sins. He's faithful, he's just, he forgives, and he cleanses. This is a process, praise God. But I want you to walk through the remaining days of your life with your eyes more wide open to what, what God in you does look like. You know, I really want to take a, a, a full stop here and finish on the deeds of the flesh. I, I so often will sit with people that profess to be believers, and, and they may be in sin up to here, and, and frequently they'll say, but I really love Jesus. I, I really love God. And, and I want you to recognize, you know, even in the midst of that, you know, the number of times that we would blame, oh, you know, it's my spouse, it's the people I live with, it's my kids, it's my job, it's my boss. Mark 7, 20-23 says this, and you don't need to go there because I know you're going to be very familiar with this. What comes out of the, of the man is what makes him unclean. From within, out of a man's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from what is inside. When we sin in this manner, it's not the people we're living with. It's, it, it's coming right here from my heart. And again, when you see that, praise God, we can confess our sin and know that we have a God that does forgive, that he's faithful to forgive. I don't think I need to go on anymore. I think we all live long enough in a sinful nature. We understand the deeds of the flesh. And uh, let's start to move toward what the fruit of the Spirit is. 
I, I would want you to know this. The deeds of the flesh, we can do on our own. The fruit of the Spirit, we cannot do on our own. It, it is God working in us. So, I'll tell you, as we start, let me read again Galatians five twenty-two and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against th- these things, such things, there is no law. Paul is describing nine areas of a believer's life, that it, what it should look like. It, it is really interesting that in the New Testament... I'm a fat geek. Don't judge me. Uh, 54 times in the New Testament, God's Word teaches by fruit or by analogy of fruit. And it, it amazes me that He is so clear. Obviously, the manifestation of fruit is important to God. Let's go to your... John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. And it's just an example of how much Scripture speaks about fruit. John 15, verse 1 through 5. Again, I know it's a familiar text. Jesus, remember, the audience here would have been Jews that were converted and he says, I am the, the true vine. But let me back up. They may not be converted at this point, but they are Jews. Uh, in John 15, and, and Jesus says to his audience, I am the true vine. This is why this is important. You, you might say, that's a weird statement. Why, why would Jesus say I'm the true vine? Because 70 times in the Old Testament, Israel is identified by the word vine. His audience knew exactly what Jesus was saying. I am the true vine. Jesus is telling the Jewish audience, I'm God. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he, pr- he prunes so that it becomes more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Just kind of like Galatians 5.22. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Wow, it sounds like wellspring disciplines. I am the vine, you are the branches, if a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is an expectation that we will manifest fruit. It's important that we understand what this fruit is really supposed to look like. Again, these words are so common, and we could have definitions to them that just aren't biblical. So, as we continue on, I, and again, I've already said this, but I cannot confess sin if I do not understand God's Word. If, if I'm not loving, I, I can't agree with God that something is unloving unless I understand what love really is. There's, two th- there's something I really, really believe. 
I think there's two reasons why people don't change. One, you have people that just don't want to change. And second, is because they don't know what change is to look like. So if I, I remember, I can remember when I first became a believer in, in hearing that, that a believer is supposed to be joyful. I really thought it was just in the horizontal things of life, I'm supposed to be joyful. That, that's never what God's intent was. I need to be content, but joy only comes in a right relationship with the Lord. So I think people don't change because they don't understand what is this supposed to look like. Uh, in light of the passage, I think most Christians could just get confused and they just don't know what change would look like or how to even strive, how to, how to even ask others for help. So let me go down, back on your handout, we're going to start going through the fruit of the Spirit and just give biblical understanding to what these words are. The fruit of the Spirit, first is love on your handout. I think if, if you were to do, you know, the man on the street and just go up to the, the average person on the street and ask what love is, I'm sure it would be something that would be based on emotion, it would be based on feeling, but, but that is never what God had in mind. Uh, biblical love only comes from God, and it's a command. Biblical love is action. You know, and you don't need to go there, because I know you're familiar with this, but 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 8 says, Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it does not keep record of wrong, it does not delight in evil, rejoices in truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. You know, it's really interesting, in, in just a few verses, there, there's, there's a lot of action of what love is, but what's really amazing that we don't talk about very often is what precedes chap, chapter 13, verse 4, about love being patient. Paul spends several verses telling that this is the matter of first importance. So here he's defining what it is, but before he defines what it is, he says, this is the number one thing. This is the matter of, of most importance. It, it's love. Let me give you from Scripture, and I know these Scriptures are going to be familiar to you, but let me give you an example of God's love. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His own love for us. Why we're sinners, Christ died for us. The, the love is Christ died for us. He sent His Son from heaven to earth to die for us. Jesus' example for love is found in John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Do you see here the action? I'm willing to die. I'm willing to set aside my preferences. Remember Jesus in the garden? God, if it would be your will, take this from me. But the love was dying to self. The scripture's clear how we're to imitate God in Christ's love, and it's found in 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay, lay down our lives for our brothers. We're, we're to be laying down a dying to self for each other. This word that you find here 
in, in chapter 5, verse 22, for love. It, it is agape. There, there are four words in the Greek that which got translated love. And one would be the agape love. It's a dying to self-love. And every time in Scripture where it's talking about God's love, Christ's love, it is agape. The, the second would be phileo, Philadelphia, brotherly love. That's another love. God is never described as brotherly love. Uh, then uh, the erotic, the sensual love, God's never described in the sensual love. Uh, sorge love, it's the love we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, God in Christ is never described in sorge love. We are described in sorge love, but, but God is only described as a dying to self God. When scripture speaks of God's love, it almost always is in the context of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. When scripture talks about a believer's love, like we saw in 1 John 3.16, that we ought to lay down our life, it's agape. We are called to agape love, to die to self. Now, here's a couple more facts. I love facts. There's only two times in Paul's teaching in the New Testament, only two times where Paul says the believer needs to love God. Every other time that Paul talk, is talking about love, he is talking about the agape love. It's showing preference to others. I think that's interesting. Because remember what I said when I'm in counseling and I, and I frequently hear people who are into sin and they, and they just say, but I love Jesus. Uh, Paul sees the importance that we need to love at this level. Uh, let me ask you a question in, in your house how, how do you do it dying to self how, how do you do at loving others by, by preferring others I, I would want you to know how you how you love how you agape others around you is an act of worship you're worshiping God when you love others, when you put others before you. On your handout, the, the second manifestation of fruit is joy. And it's a deep down sense of well-being that abides in the heart because we know that our relationship is right with the Lord. Again, 70 times in the New Testament, the word joy, joyful, an expression of joy. It's almost every time, if you read the near context where you find the word joy, Scripture is clear where it comes from. Our joy comes from God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and it's always in the context of a saved relationship. But is, is such a different view for the secular world who bases their joy on, on a pay raise, on a new car, on stuff that, you know, it's, it, I don't want to say one thing's more spiritual than the other, but our joy needs to be found no matter what our circumstances. God, it's my relationship with you. God, change the people I live with.
But Lord, my joy is that you have saved me. You know, I, there's so many questions I, I have uh, in my family. Not my wife and kids, but my family, brothers and parents. I'm the only believer. I, I don't know of another believer going back to the family tree. I do have a weird family tree. I don't know why God saved me, but it moves me to joy because of my relationship with him. It blows me away that he would save me. Uh, the Christian, there is contentment of just knowing that you're right with the Lord. Joy is a gift to the believer. You know, think about that. It, it is a gift. If you're not feeling joy and you're, and you're not content in your circumstances, you need, you need to confess it as sin. You, you need to repent because you're looking for joy in the wrong place. The Christian's joy is lived out even in the midst of trials, midst of suffering. The third fruit is peace. Uh, tranquility of mind that comes from a saving relationship with, with Jesus. And, and again, growing up as a product of the hippie movement in the 60s, you know, peace had a completely different thought. It was, you know, and I think if you went down to the mall and asked the average person what peace is, I'm sure you would hear all our troops coming home, that there's no more war. Uh, the average person uh, on the street just would not understand biblical peace. And, and go to John chapter 14. And I, I want to show you what biblical peace is. What the Holy Spirit should be manifesting in you. I, uh, I enjoy calling John 14, 17, Jesus' last will and testament. And let, let me explain it. Uh, if, if your parents had $100, and it's their money today, and they still have it, and upon their death, they will it to you, and now it's your money, you can't go spend that money today. It's not yours. It belongs to parents. What Jesus is saying here. And I'm reading the text now. Peace I leave you. Peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This passage is right before Christ's death. Here's the thing. Jesus Christ had to die on the cross for you and I to have peace. He left us his peace and that's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel, that we now, God and sinner reconciled, we're at peace. Let me, because I, I want you to grab this concept of indicative and imperative. I'm going to read the verse again, and I'm going to just tell you what the indicative is here. Peace I leave. Leave is an indicative. It's a fact. My peace I leave you. My peace I give you. It is a fact. I do not give to you as the world gives. Give and gives are both facts. So Jesus, I love, I love this. He tells us four times that the fact of our relationship with him in the indicative form, and then he gives two commands, imperatives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Imperative, and do not be afraid. 
Uh, praise God that he comforts us with what our relationship is before he tells us. Could you? What would this mean if it just said, don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid? Okay. But he's telling you, you have my peace. You, your relationship with me is right. Let me ask you, do you live in peace? Do you... Do you at home, are you, are you comfortable just knowing that your relationship's right with the Lord, regardless of what circumstances might be? This verse is a call to remind ourselves of the gospel. Jesus, you left me peace. When, when you died on the cross, you gave it to me. I have it. I have received it. Lord, I don't want my heart to be troubled. I don't want to be afraid. The fourth fruit of the Spirit is, is patience. Patience reflected in not being easily offended. Are you easily offended? And being honest with you, this is the area where I, I need to strive to be self-controlled. I, I am not, a, in my flesh, a patient person. If you see any patience, it's only the, the Holy Spirit working in me that you would see it. it it's... God showed his patience with us in being long-suffering. You know, if it, he didn't just smite us out in, in, in Genesis chapter 6. Praise God. And, and here's the thing. Go, go back to Galatians 5, 6, 19, the, the deeds of the flesh. When I am not patient, what you would normally see would be the fits of rage, selfish ambition, hatred, discord... Do you recognize it? This is a tool to examine your heart. If you see these deeds of the flesh, look, what is it that I am lacking to manifest in the fruit of the Spirit? Am I not having love for others? Am I not just being reminded of my vertical relationship with the Lord and therefore joyful? But it is, this is a wonderful place to go examine your heart. The, the fifth is kindness. It refers to a concern for others. And again, this is, this is a, another word in the English language that we just don't think biblically. How often would you say to, to a child, oh, you're so kind. Uh, that's, that's, that's great, and that is an understanding of kindness. But almost every time that you see the word kindness in Scripture, if you go to the near context, go two verses either way of the word kindness, and there's something that's always happening, and it's repentance. When you see kindness, the context is always repentance. Think of Romans 2.4. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. But do, do the search almost every time. But, but here's the amazing thing. God uses us as instruments of kindness. He uses us as instruments of kindness in our homes, with other people. We are in the being used in the process of repentance. What an amazing God to use people like us for his good purposes of bringing repentance. Praise God. That is an amazing God. He doesn't need us, but in his love he chooses to use us. Uh, the, the sixth fruit is, is goodness. And it's both an uprightness of soul, action, reaching to others to do good 
even when it's not deserved. I'll give you a, just a brief biblical picture. I know you remember it. It's Matthew 1 when Mary and Joseph are engaged and Joseph finds out that Mary is, is pregnant. He knows he's not the father and his first thought, what scripture says, is that he would marry her and divorce her quietly. Now, if it were me, I would tell it from the mountain, I'm not marrying her, that's not my child. But Joseph, in his goodness to Mary, wanted to help cover her sin. We exhibit goodness when we care for others in a way that's good, even when it's not deserved. Does that make sense, what goodness is? Because so often we can just think of it as, oh, he just did that out of the goodness of his heart. That's nice and that's good, but that's not a biblical goodness. Do you let others fail without great condemnation? That's biblical goodness. When your spouse, when your friend sins against you, do, do you allow them without great condemnation? Gentleness. Oh, I missed faithfulness, sorry. Faithfulness. Our God, our Savior, are faithful. I, I love Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Just, just a little side note about the book of Lamentations. It's five chapters. It's a short, short book. Chapter 3, smart, facts. Chapter 3, right smack dab in the middle. And it's a chapter, if you're struggling with God's faithfulness, God's goodness to you, go read the book of Lamentations. And, and chapter 3 is all about a faithful God. His mercies are new every morning, praise God. Jesus' faithfulness is found in Philippians 2.7. Jesus made himself self nothing, taking the very nature as a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. Uh, that is Christ's faithfulness. He, he was faithful to the end to do what his father asked. And it's such a different view than the secular of somebody trying to, to just be a faithful person. But this is faithfulness to what God has called us to do. It, it doesn't matter how faithful I am here in the world if I'm not faithful to God. If I'm not willing to do what his word says. The eighth manifestation is gentleness. Uh, again, this is such a weird word in the English language where if you'd say, oh, Tom, he's so gentle. Somebody might think, oh, Tom, he just talks with a soft voice. All right. that, that's not the biblical picture. Here's what gentleness is in the biblical picture. And it's a picture of Matthew 5, 5 from the Sermon on the Mount. Some versions say, blessed are the meek. Some say, blessed is the gentle. Here it is. To be gentle is to say, God, I know you're in control. I don't need to control this. When things are, are not going your way, for you to be gentle and say, God, I, I know you have this in control. God, I know, you, I know the bad report from the doctor. God, I know you're in control of this. That is what it is to be gentle 
Um, I remember, and some of you probably heard this story before I was a believer. I, I remember I was probably about 22 years old. Ann and I were married, two nice pagans, uh, trying to be real moral. And, and I had this guy come into where I worked, and, and he said, and he goes, you're, you're a Christian, aren't you? I thought I was. I, I really did. And I said, yeah. He goes, I thought so. He goes, you're so gentle. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> gentle. And so when I did become a believer and I'm starting to figure this out and I'm thinking, what did that guy mean? I was gentle. And he wouldn't know what biblical, he couldn't, he didn't know me well enough to know what biblical gentleness was. Because biblical gentleness is, God, I trust you. God, this is horrible. This is hard. God, I trust you. And there's a few areas of gentleness, uh, and I'm not going to read the verses. I'm just going to have you look them up. But there's three attitudes where we express gentleness, and it's Colossians 3.12. It, it's submissive to God's will. I'm not railing against God. I could be gentle, God. I trust you. Uh, James 1.21 is gentle being to being teachable. It's when somebody, when somebody, when my wife, when one of my other elders comes and brings something to me that I'm willing to be teachable, I'm willing to be gentle. Uh, Ephesians 4, 2, and 3, it's gentle, it's consideration of others. But I'll, I'll tell you this, in the New Testament where you see the word gentle or, or meek, the demonstration is somebody that is stubbornly trusting God. Stubbornly trusting God. The ninth manifestation the last is self-control. Reverse refers to the person's ability to have mastery over their own desire. A, a secular s thought of self-control would be the ability to control your emotions. Just think of, and maybe you've said this to your kids, just control yourself. Just exhibit some self-control. Uh, the biblical sense would be to, to have control, to, to put off, to be pleasing to the Lord. I am putting off what my desire is because I, my aim is to please you, Lord. And as self-control, we grow in that as a believer. I, I want to give you some, some application to this, and I'm going to go quickly because I would like to be invited back again. And if you don't have small group time, I may not be, uh, but it would be, a, it would be an error for me if I didn't give you something practical. When you see deeds of the flesh being revealed, e evaluate it from the fruit of the Spirit. What, what am I lacking to manifest right now? Is it a lack of love for others? Is it a lack of being content with my relationship with the Lord? But, but when you see that, go to God's Word and just look at it. It is amazing that in two short verses, God can sum it up so concisely how to evaluate our heart. Uh, a second, a tool I made, and gosh, I thought when I was up here and put these glasses on, it looked so big when I was sitting in the back of the Bible. I don't think Rebecca could read this in the back row, but what this says is spiritual, it, it's prayer and Bible reading, work, home, health. These are just categories. Other, social, uh, I would flunk the eye test here. If, if this is living with others, this is finances, marriage, singleness. And here's the practical message I want you to, to walk away with. What I can sometimes do, if I just say to myself, you know what, 
I need to be more faithful. I mean, that's that huge. And so what I'll, I'll do, and I'll take this, and I'll just put the fruit of the Spirit that I desire to grow in, and I'll write faithful. Instead of thinking something this big a category, I will, I will evaluate spiritually in my prayer life, in my Bible reading, my pursuit of God, what one thing can I do that would exhibit greater faithfulness? If, it, if it's work or home, what one thing can I do? Because I'm telling you, I can get overwhelmed. And I don't even know where to start at the point of being overwhelmed. I just need to be more faithful. But, but what? You know, in your health, if, if it's a matter of, gosh, this is convicting. Exercise, you know, if that's what I need to be doing, what one thing can I do to start? Other, it's a category that might just be something that maybe in your own life, but marriage and singles, what one thing can I do that would grow in faithfulness in being married or being single? What one thing can I do to be faithful with my finances and being faithful with the people I live with with the friends I hang out with, the time I spend. But, but the thought is, if, if I could break this down to just one thing, I can do one thing. I can focus on one thing that I need to have my eyes wide o- open to. Maybe it's, it's love. You know, what, what one thing do, do I need to change in showing love to God, in showing love to my family by being somebody that's pursuing God and, and just continue through. The, and I use this just as a tool to, to examine my own heart because if I don't do this, I just think I'm doing great. I'm super. And, and I know at the same time, and maybe you're not like me, if you just say, Tom, you need to be more faithful, it's an overwhelming thought. But if I can look at it from the different areas of my life, you know what, that's a starting place where I could say, wow, I can change. And here's change starts with agreeing with God. God, I have not exhibited faithfulness. Lord, I agree with you. When I did this, that, that was not exhibiting faithfulness. And God's faithful. He's just, he forgives, and he cleanses. Let me close in prayer. Lord, Father, we do pray.